Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Today's guest, Brian Anderson, has set up an entire community of dads called Fathering Together. Fathers sometimes have to feel their way, and it's a very fragile path, and sometimes dads can be clumsy. Brian Anderson, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Okay, so I read something on your social media that I want to start with. Okay. It says, a strong dad sees themselves as part of the family, not a distant, emotionless dictator that works to create solutions with their partner and children, not handing down orders. I love that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that parents fall into a lot. Yeah. And I do too, right? Like even the best parents still have those moments where, because I said so, escapes our mouths. And then we realize that's not an answer. That's just a a statement that like, what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And that too was followed up by some forgiveness letters that you wrote. Yes. I I mean, I've been letter writing with my girls forever, but my daughter, my, my older one, she's nine next week. She will also write forgiveness letters to me. There'll be times where we we would have a fight or something would happen during the day. And then I would go to bed later and she would have snuck out of her room left a note on my nightstand basically saying like, I'm sorry, daddy, please don't hate me or please forgive me or you know whatever. And the internalization of her pain was so clear in those letters that I was like, no, 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 this is not on you. You are six, five, whatever age you were at the time. And so I would write a letter back and leave it next to her, next to her bedstand. And I think it's so, I mean, research shows like we're going to make mistakes. It's how you repair that damage afterwards. And the more we as parents, not just dads, but moms too, the more we can say, hey, we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes too. It gives license for our children to learn how to repair their own damage and and kind of navigate that that pain that they may cause in their life later on. Do you think apologizing is a generational thing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, my parents definitely apologized at times, but I do wonder. Yeah, I do wonder if it's more a millennial Gen Z or maybe some. I mean, I'm, I'm born in 1980, so I'm definitely in that like in between X and millennial kind of phase. So. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good good research question for someone to, to figure out. Did you see your parents apologize? Oh, for sure. I mean, not in that way of like writing letters or whatever that I do with my girls, but I definitely have memories of my parents saying like, oh, right, sorry, or kind of in the moment realizing like my sister and I actually did know what we were talking about. But I think it was also just a different dynamic where, and I mean, this is kind of going down a rabbit hole, but you know, our kids have so much more information at their fingertips good and bad, right? Like 
misinformation and everything aside. And so there's just more opportunities for them to learn than we ever did as kids without the internet at school, right? Like we just kind of had to go by what's in the textbook, what's the teacher telling us. And so I think we, we look to our parents to be experts far more than our children have to, especially as they get into high school. I mean, you know, when they're four, five, six, whatever, they're still looking for us for everything. I don't think there's any data that's just an observation in terms of what information our kids have. But I do think there's just more potential for our kids to be right when they stand their ground and say like, no, I do know this versus you when you and I were younger and we were just like, I'm just going to be a stick in the mud and say, I do like, I'm going to be an expert even if I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. They're actually able to Google stuff and pull it up pretty quickly. Right. Especially once they have their own smartphones and, and all that. Yeah. My girls are not, we're not quite there yet. We've got a couple more years we're hoping before the, the smartphones debut, but. Yeah. How are you managing parenthood now? And how is it different than maybe you thought it would be? I don't know what I thought it would be anymore. Nine years in, I think at times it's much easier and other times I'm just like pulling whatever hair I have left out. The other day, my wife and I were talking about the cell phone topic and she was like, I already got it covered. There was like, a group of moms talking at drop-off earlier in this this academic year, and they all kind of had an informal agreement that they're all going to wait till sixth grade. And so no matter what our kids come home telling us, we know in our core group of parent friends at our, our kids' school that sixth grade is our standard. That may change, obviously, in the next three, four years, but but that's one piece, like leaning on neighbors as much as possible. And as you saw, like, I've got a sick kid with me today. And so I didn't want to take her out in the cold weather. And, and I texted five or six neighbors right away this morning. And I was like, anybody available to take Claire to school because I have to stay home with my other one. And several people got back right away like, yeah, send Claire over or, or we can swing by and pick her up. So, you know, I think the village mentality is coming back in droves because of the pandemic and or at least in, in my corner of the U.S. And whether it's babysitting referrals or just a quick like, hey, can somebody take the kids, like, can we do a play date? You know, just those kind of informal community leans, if you will, are very evident in our neighborhood. But I think in general, how am I doing? I think part of why I joked at the beginning is no one expected the pandemic. And so I think the last two years disrupted everything. In some ways, as I said, like my daughters know a lot more math than they do anything else because my wife and I are just naturally smarter in that area. And so whether we meant to or not, our girls are just a little more advanced in math. They can't spell worth a darn, right? Like, so they're very selectively brilliant. And that lends itself to different kinds of parenting conversations that I'm having now than I necessarily would have expected because the kids just pick that up or pick certain things up faster. And I can have an adult conversation with my nine-year-old in certain topics than I thought I would, especially in light of the George Floyd murder and a lot of the other things that took place throughout the pandemic. My daughter just started asking more questions than, than I was expecting at this age. I was thinking, you know, middle school when a lot of the, I mean, you, you get the big questions, right? Like every kid says, where do babies come from when they're little? But the follow-up questions and the deep kind of informal analysis that my kid's little brain is calculating is brilliant and not necessarily something I was prepared for this early on. Do you feel like you've gotten to have a different relationship with your younger one than you did with the first one because of the pandemic? You know, we actually been talk about this a lot because my younger one idolizes her older sister. And, and as we were thinking about Christmas and the gifts and like what kinds of things we want to be, you know, doing in the new year, she can probably hear me, but 
my newest one loves doing what her big sister does. And I'm really pushing her to think about what she wants to do, right? And and who are you in this world? Not how do you want to be your big sibling? My wife and I are both firstborn. And so I don't, I mean, I had some cousins I looked up to or some, you know, kids in the neighborhood, but I didn't have a sibling that I was living in the shadow of, right? And there is a great author, Gabor Mate. He's a researcher mm-hmm. around ADHD. And I've been reading a lot of his work lately. You know, one of the things that he speaks about is your children, no children have the same parents. No siblings have the same parents. And and it's true, right? I mean, but no person has the same relationship with another person. And so that makes sense that a parent would not have the same relationship to the, the children that they may have one, two, or, you know, two or more. And so that's just really been sitting with me to think about how am I intentionally doing my best to keep a similar relationship, but also not how do I baby the youngest too much or expect too much from the oldest? And how am I not living into the statistics and sociological reports of, well, statistically speaking, older ones do this and younger ones do that. And how can I push back against some of that? So I'm not just fitting into molds, cultural norms, so to speak. Wow. I love that you're reading about that. Did you do that from the beginning? Oh, no, no, no. I just recently was diagnosed with ADD. So I've been kind of like, my wife and I have both been looking at as many resources as possible. And he was recommended for my therapist and and just, you know, the snowball of data that comes with following different influencers on TikTok, Instagram, other places. You know, his name pops up a lot. Dr. Becky and The Good Inside pops up a lot. So there's just a lot of great resources that we're now incorporating that either didn't exist yet because the books weren't written or we just hadn't come across in our parenting prep. Okay, so I have not talked about ADD at all on the show. Can you mm-hmm. talk about how that came about and what that looks like in parenting? I can talk a little bit. I'm not, I'm still at the forefront. Like I'm still very What does new. it look like for you? Yeah. yeah. I've had ADD my whole life in various forms. And only recently during the pandemic has it really gotten to a point where all of my internal and external processes that have made me successful in life have been put to the point of breaking. And my therapist and you know the, the doctor who gave me the analysis and all this kind of stuff, both were like, yeah, everyone was put to the breaking point during the pandemic. Don't beat yourself up, right? And and I wasn't, right? But it was definitely, I was noticing that it was getting in the way of being a good parent, that my impulsivity, my over-focusing on some things and being forgetful in other areas, my my daughters were calling me out on things. And, and I was like, ooh, this is not what I want for my family, not what I want for my children. And so how can I, what can I be doing to, to remedy this? And And through that journey, a lot of things made much more sense when we didn't have kids, right? And when I was dating my wife and she's come to realize like, oh, right, there is something more here than Brian's just forgetful or absent-minded. Like maybe there is some, you know, some chemicals and drugs that will help Brian function better and be more reliable in certain areas or not. And the form of ADD that I have is is such that I I forget like the minor details of things. Like a new problem, I'll be great. Like when parenthood came on, great. It was a tackling, it was a learning curve that I could tackle. When I take a new job, it's a learning curve I can tackle. Once I tackle them and get comfortable with it, that's when things start to be forgotten or missed. And so for me, that means I have checklists all over the house, all over my virtual spaces. So if something comes up, like for work, I'm a grant manager. So I write a lot of grants. I have checklists of, okay, when a new grant comes in and it's awarded, Here's what I do to make sure we track it properly. When I'm going after a new grant, here's what I'm doing to track that properly and and where I can find the data I need to plug into the application. At home, that means 
every morning I have the same routine and it's written on my computer. It's in my bathroom. Like take these, you know, take your medication, dress yourself, do all these different things in a routine so that if I step out of that routine, I'm going to forget the rest. Right. And, and it sounds like I sound like I have a huge mental handicap and I don't. Right. But as I speak it out, it just seems silly. Like, why would I have everything written down? But we live in a culture where we're all overtaxed. We're all overburdened. As parents, we have a full-time job. And then a full-time parenting job that you put in overtime every day for both. And so, of course, you're going to miss things and make mistakes on things. But when you have things written out, when you take the time to make those lists and, and check in on those lists, less and less things get dropped. And, and oddly enough, this isn't necessarily, I just made this connection, but a friend of mine, or, or I should say a former student of mine who's now a dad, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, when I was an undergrad and you were my advisor... I was like, Brian's so cool. He does all these adventures, but now you're a dad and you, you, you stay home a lot. And I, I read your blog and you just don't have that adventurous spirit that I remember you having. And he meant it very politely. He wasn't trying to be mean or anything. And I turned it around on him and I said, yeah, you're right. I'm not traveling around the world like I once did in my 20s, but building a garden in the backyard or playing the floor is lava and creating up elaborate you know, scavenger hunts with my daughters is my new adventure. It is my new conquest. And so I've kind of shifted my thinking in my brain to, to allow that to be fulfilling for me, right? And allow me to say, I may not be traveling abroad this year, pandemic aside, but the imagination that my kids ignite in me now and the world we're creating out of Legos and Barbie dolls is just as much fun. That has allowed me a modicum of, of peace and tranquility inside. So I'm not feeling restless as much as, as I might if I wasn't able to be proactive with that. That is so beautiful. Do you feel like your experiences that you've had have contributed to why you're such a good dad? Like the traveling yeah, of the yeah. world or the blogging yeah. or the forming of the fathering together community. I think every experience I've had in my life has formed me to who I am today, right? And there are some things that I probably wish I hadn't have gone through. Like there are some breakups that weren't that fun. There are some people that I've met that I didn't necessarily need to meet or you know, events that I'd gone to that ended up not panning out. There's no necessarily return of investment, not necessarily financial, but just in my you know spiritual growth. So taking all that into consideration, I don't know if there was any one thing in my book, you know, Finally Together Living a Connected Dad Life. I talk a lot about how my dad was very honest and open with my sister and I in saying, I want to be a good dad because my dad wasn't. And I want to break that cycle of disconnection. And so I was very blessed to be on that kind of forefront of this modern connected dad movement because of my, my, my dad. And there was a handful of guys that I interviewed for the book that had the same experience where like their dad in the 80s was very open and honest and doing all the heavy lifting. And now there's so many more dads I'm meeting that are doing what my dad did 40 years ago or a friend of mine's dad did. And so they are considering themselves the breakers of that cycle. And it's beautiful and it's great. I don't think they're any less of a dad, right? They're definitely not. I mean, some of my dad friends are amazing human beings that I look up to, but I think they navigate fatherhood slightly differently, not because of our relationships with our dads, but because of the natural skill set we also have, right? Like my training and my background is in community organizing and ministry. So I take a more ministerial community organizing kind of role to fatherhood and building a community of friendship around us for my daughters and myself. Whereas like, my sister is a very analytical professor type and her house 
never looks messy. If she ever hears this, she's going to roll her eyes at me. But she's a carpenter, building designer type person, and she flips homes. And every time we visit her, it's like her house is staged to be sold, whether they're going to sell it or not. And yet she has two little kids. And, and I'm just like, I don't know how you do it. I have no clue how you do it. And she's like, I don't know how you live your life, right? And and yet our kids are relatively all healthy, balanced, and we get along good enough, you know, when, when we hang out that I think it's much more the the skill set you bring in and the the mindset you bring in that you bring you pass along to your children more so than necessarily any one given experience. Yeah, that makes sense. I am interested in who you look up to and what you think makes a good dad. I don't think there's any one dad that has everything that I look up to, right? Like that's, that would be way too much pressure to put on any of my friends or colleagues. But for the time, my dad was perfect for me, right? And he sat me down when I needed it at times and gave me some tough love. And then there were times where he let me cry and didn't judge me for having a bad day and showing emotion. Like so many friends I've, and, and stories from other men that I've heard that are like, yeah, I wasn't allowed to cry. Like my parents said, boys don't cry. And so I learned not to cry. Or a friend of mine named Andy, who had to perform to be loved by his dad. He was like, I don't know how to not, it took me a long time to accept love for the sake of love. Because every time I wanted my dad's attention, I had to do well in sports or get a good report card or something to, to have a conversation. So the fact that Andy will sit and just play cards and games with his kids when his kids were younger and sick, just would spend the night up rocking the children while he let his wife get some rest, right? Like those are the kind of dads I look up to. My neighbors, you know, one of them is a computer programmer. I have no clue. I, I would know, I like, I can do some Excel programming, right? Like I could put a, a formula to add up some columns, but he designs things and he's a great musician. And I look up to him because he has a carefree spirit around that and his patience with the kids when they play with instruments. I'm like I'm, my skin is crawling. So I'm like, they're going to break it. They're going to break it. And they don't, right? I'm always in the wrong. And he's so calm about it. He's like, here's another drum. Go b bang on the drum, right? And we'll just have these backyard sessions. And I'm just like, man, I wish I had his calm around this. And yet he will come and tell me like, I don't know how you do half the stuff you do. And, and it's like this mutual respect of looking out to each other. And there's another dad on our block who's going through a divorce and he's so present to his kids through this whole process that I'm just like, how, how are you maintaining your sanity, right? Like, how do you have this calm? And so I think there's moments where I just look up to all these men in my life and I'm like, okay, how can I be more like this dad today or this other dad? And how can I channel that because my kid is driving me up the wall and I don't know how to get through this, right? And, and a lot of that stems from fathering together and the community of dads we've built on Facebook and dads with daughters and the in-person events we've done where one person will have an experience and share it just because that was what they had for the day, right? That was the challenge they overcame. And there'll be all these dads that will post and respond saying like, holy crap, I never imagined thinking about it that way. I'll take that home and, and figure it out. Or, or something I said that I was just like, oh, this is just something we do, right? Like my wife and I have a Google calendar where we have a standing meeting at nine o'clock every night and we just put stuff into the agenda as stuff happens during the day. It's something we came up with we never thought was a big deal. And I said it the other day and a group of people were like, oh my God, that's genius. And I was like, okay, use it, right? Like I'm not a spokesperson for Google calendars. There's no kickbacks. There's no special favors I'm getting. It's just something that my wife and I figured out how to survive and use. And so yeah, take it, go, be great, right? And I think that's the part of fatherhood that I bring to my network is just this like convener of, of storytelling and swapping of, of dad 
experiences in, in a non-judgmental space. I love that. How did it come about? Following together came about in kind of two different ways. One is the the fact that I didn't have any dad friends. Most of my friends didn't have kids yet. So I started finding coworkers, neighbors that had kids. And I said, hey, let's go grab a beer and talk about fatherhood. And that you know, it was fun. And so we did it a couple of months later. And then it kind of got into this rhythm of every second Friday, we would just meet at this one bar and, and talk. Sometimes it was three or four dads, sometimes it was 12. And while this was kind of happening in real time in my personal neighborhood, my friend Chris started this Facebook group called Dads with Daughters, and it started growing. And I said, do you want some help? And it was just a fun thing to do on the side. But Within two years, we had over 100,000 members across the globe, right? And the structure that was in place on Facebook at the time was nothing compared to all the things they have now. And so that was a lot of work. And we built a community of leadership, volunteers who were willing to put some sweat equity in to cultivate a, a Facebook space that was free of judgment, that was free of misogyny and, and sexism, and, and really a space of open-minded challenge and growth that was safe and accountable. And as, as it grew, we saw, you know, just so many dads not having the skills, not knowing where to look for the resources. And so we formed Fathering Together as a nonprofit to really have a channel for those resources and be a virtual hub, if you will, for these dads. And because it was during the pandemic, like literally we turned in our, our 501c3 paperwork right before the pandemic shut everything down and received the determination letter in the midst of 2022 or 2020 in that summer. And so we really focused in on what can we be doing virtually for dads. And now as the world is opening up again, we're keeping the name Fathering Together. It's not going anywhere, but how do we shift to a in-person space? And so we're, we're working with a number of dads from our community to launch kind of local chapters in their schools and elementary schools specifically to allow for dads to feel like they can be more than just the dad that drops off their kids on the, you know, at the parking lot or the, the playground line and goes off on their merry way. But instead, how can they be invited into joining the PTA or being a field trip volunteer, a room parent, what have you, so that the schools recognize dads are also a parent and they are able to you know, answer the phone in an emergency. It's not just the moms th that defaults, that, that schools default to in a crisis or doctor's offices or any other number of things. And so that's our kind of 2022, 2023 plan is piloting the, this idea with a number of dads in our network in their school systems and or, or elementary school communities and, and then building up from there again to have these little pods of, of support and accountability for dads. That is so remarkable. I absolutely love that. Okay, this is going to be a funny question, but have you ever had like any matchmaking situations? Because like dads who are into personal development is kind of like hot, right? And like you're sure. dealing with divorces. Like, have you ever like done any matchmaking? No, I got out of that game a long, long time ago. We've done matchmaking in terms of friendships, right? Like I was at a restaurant down the street with my daughter before the pandemic, just having you know, a little daddy daughter outing. As we're sitting there, I get a message through Facebook and they're like, Brian, are you sitting at this table? And I'm like, what? And it was a guy from the group that I, you know, we had met in the group already. It wasn't like that crazy, but you know, we hung out a little bit, right? And and there is definitely, there have definitely been posts of members hanging out with other members saying like, look who I ran into, or I set up a play date. Anybody else that lives in this location, you know, 
reach out to me. And it's been great to see, you know, using social media for what it's meant to be used for, right? As a, as a convener and as a space to connect human beings together. And so no weddings that I've heard of, but a lot of new dad friendships, both in the virtual space, but definitely in the in-person space. But it is funny you say that, you know, personal growth is, is hot. We were having a panel on gender equity in the home and Kate Mangino, she's the author of equal partners, phenomenal woman. You need to have her on your podcast at some point. She was like, listen, dads, making dinner, folding clothes, that's sexy. You'll get a lot of brownie points when you do that for your partner. And so here's hoping that our listeners on that particular webinar that we hosted, you know, took that to heart. Exactly. That's what I was getting at. (laughs) Yeah. So hopefully, you know, if we very much have the mission of empowering dads to be agents of change, right? Like we focus on fatherhood, but that is by no means our end goal. Like We want dads to be empowered and healthy so that their partners are healthy as well, that their children have a safe home, that their communities are fun to be in, whether that's, you know, dads getting together to rake leaves for the elderly folks in their neighborhood and they bring their kids along to instill that sense of service and and volunteerism, or that they're just, you know, collecting canned food drives or whatever. I don't care. It's how are we getting dads to be more than this financial provider, this quote unquote breadwinner that is so disconnected. And I think, you know, with the the fact that your show is Better Call Daddy, right? Like Better Call Saul and and Breaking Bad, like I talk about Walt Whitman a lot, not Walt Whitman, sorry, Walter White, different WW name. In some ways, he's a great dad, like, right? Like he lied to himself, unfortunately, but he was telling himself he was doing all this for the sake of his children. But for all those people that have seen the shows, it all ends really poorly for everybody involved because it, it really wasn't the greatest of methods, right? And we have plenty of dads who all that they can do right now is, is to work five jobs and make sure that their kids have a steady, you know, home and, and roof and food and all that stuff. That's great, right? I'm not going to say anybody is a terrible dad if, if they're working their, their ass to the bone to get food on the table. But I am going to say you're a bad dad if you put work in front of your children, because I did that for far too long. And my daughter called me out on it one night and said, dad, I know you're trying to help dads be better dads, but you're not a good dad to me because I don't see you enough. And it broke my heart. You know, I was like, how am I going to like turn this around and save this relationship? And and I did, right? We have a good relationship a couple years later. But as I reflected on what she told me, it was true. I was putting in too many hours and I was in love with my work. I was in love with the network I was building for my work and my job and all the things that I was doing that I was putting her and her sister and my wife second in many regards and giving them my my extra energy or my table scraps of energy rather than that energy that they deserved first and foremost. And by no means am I perfect. As I said before, I, I still make mistakes plenty of times, but my new barometer is like, okay, if I say yes to this thing at work or this volunteer experience, how much of that is going to take away from spending the time and the quality time that my kids need with me, especially when they want to hang out with me, right? Like obviously as our kids get into teenage years, they don't want to hang out with us anymore. I'm preparing myself for that in eventuality. But for now it's six and nine, like they want to play cards. They want want to build things. So if I say no to them, I'm just setting up an easy pattern for them to say, okay, dad's too busy for me. I'll do something else then. And I don't want that ever to be a part of their equation. Yeah. That's a really good reminder. I would also be interested in like, what are some of the hardest issues that you've tackled or that people have faced that have been in your group that have brought up hard situations? Are there any that have stuck with you? 
Yeah, I mean, we've definitely early on when the group was forming, we had dads essentially post suicide notes in our community. And they were like, my kids are better off without me. Thanks, guys, for all your support. But I'm checking out instantly like everyone was on that person and call like figuring out where they lived calling police and we had veterans that were joining that were really struggling and we had other veterans reaching out and helping them kind of transition out of the military life and you know like that's stuff that like i didn't expect when we started dads with daughters or just talking you know we thought like oh how to change diapers how to you know do sleep schedules the quote unquote, easy stuff. But the fact that we created a space where men felt comfortable enough to declare that or that they felt like there was a need to tell us, right? Like, and then we had people respond quickly to get them the help that they needed was something that I never envisioned. And and so we created a protocol. We had a couple of volunteers like do some weird work around suicide hotline prevention, all that kind of stuff to create a roadmap for us to, to move things forward. But there were also like young dads who didn't quite understand what fatherhood meant yet, right? And and they would post something like, ah, oh, but all I wanna do is play video games. Can't my wife understand? Or my girlfriend is being so mad at me, but that's her, like whatever, that's her job, right? There would be a lot of tough love to be like, dude, this is fatherhood. Like get your head on straight and stop playing video games or at least curtail it, right? Like play an hour a week or, half hour a day, whatever, right? Like, obviously you need your escape. We all need things to kind of keep us balanced. But if it's getting in the way from playing with your kid, then you got it all wrong. And and so we let some of those posts go through to get kind of that tough love that they needed to hear from people. But it was never, it never crossed the border of like, you are a terrible person, right? It was like, hey, I'm an older dad who's been there. Let me tell you what you're going to miss out on if you go down this path. And we would highlight grandpas in the group and uncles and, you know, non-biological dads to say like, fatherhood is not just me procreating and having a biological kid. There's all these other people that will play a role in your children's lives. So let's listen to them. The more quote unquote seasoned dads who have been around the block, they've got a lot of wisdom to share. So we would allow for that kind of back and forth to go. Yeah. I love the mentorship aspect. That is so cool. That's really cool. And I, I do feel like, even kind of the theme of this show is like, hey, let's include another generation. Yeah. And, and to your point earlier about like, is it our generation or not? Like there's just such a growth that happens in some really great ways and some guess and check and maybe we did it wrong. Let's and and I think there's definitely things that I will never do that my grandfather did that my my father told me in terms of just the the absenteeism that my grandfather was much more comfortable in his workshop and just not connected. And he was a very benevolent feminist where he loved his daughters and wanted the best friend of them. But it was in this like, but they're women, so they need me to like help them out, right? And my dad was like, yeah, he never showed me love in any direction, but I definitely didn't want the kind of this patriarchal, like patronizing kind of love either. But he was, I remember as a young boy, he would teach me things in his woodshed, right? Like he did teach me some carpentry skills that I can barely remember and definitely not sticking with me because I'm terrible at carpentry. But but there was a way that he showed love through doing that my dad did not do, but did carry through, right? And I think that's true of a lot of dads I've talked to. This one dad in our community wrote a, a short story for us in a collection we did. We ended up cutting part of it because it was too long, but he talked about how his dad was a soccer coach and they had kind of a, you know, a very much a, a relationship based on soccer. And his dad showed love by running up and down the field on the sideline and cheering and being there in that sports sort of way. 
but rarely talked about that in a sit down over coffee in at the kitchen table, right? It was a much more like, I don't know how to tell you I love you, but I'll show you because I'm there at every soccer practice, every game, following the ball, cheering you on, et cetera, right? And so I think there is that piece of cross-generation knowledge that we can be leaning on and, and not pushing aside because they didn't say the right woke term or the right kind of, have the right perspective on something. Or they didn't say and, it politically correct enough. And, and they didn't say it politically correct. Or I don't want to like lose some of the richness of our ancestors because they didn't have all the resources we had, right? Like our parents didn't have Google, like we were talking about earlier. They didn't have the knowledge that my community can give me from across the globe in a matter of seconds because they had to figure out on their own without even a phone sometimes, right? In the case of our grandparents. Or my dad was trying to explain party lines to my kids at Thanksgiving. And they were like, we don't even understand what a regular phone is, let alone a rotary or a, a party line. And there was some, some of those were stories I had never heard from my parents either. And so I think there is such a wealth of information to be had when we allow some of the bad to creep in so that we can educate our parents and, and our past generation and say, we can't say that anymore. Or, you know, we, we're doing it this way now, but I will happily let you sit and read stories with my daughters, right? And allow you to have that bond in ways that I had with some of my grandparents. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship with your grandparents and some of your family richness. Yeah. So I come from Catholic stock. We have lots of relatives on both sides. Growing up, I had three grandparents that were still living. And my mom's dad and I, I don't know what it was, but we just always kind of were specially connected. And I think it's because he was just an emotional person. He cried at the drop of a hat. And I don't know, just a lot of the things he did in his life were things that I've inadvertently followed and done in my life. But in his later years, you know, I was living in Alaska and on the West Coast. And so I didn't get to see him all that frequently. But when I would ever, whenever I did come home, you know, I would visit him in the nursing community where he lived and spend a few hours just catching up. And, and he would always politely, especially as I was getting into my late 20s, ask if I was dating anyone and it's like you know I'm not getting any older or I'm not getting any younger Brian like hoping to see a few more grandkids get married I'm like all right grandpa I'm on it I'm on it but there was a couple things he told me before he passed and when he met my wife told both of us and he was like you know never go to bed angry right like even if you're not happy with the person settle the disagreement before you get into bed and recognize that you love them more than you hate them and and this too shall pass and and all of that kind of fun Hallmark letters kind of stuff. But he also like, he's just very kind about the way that he approached everyone he met. And, and this is in the book too, with my father, they just really live servant leadership as a method for life, not just for fatherhood. And those kind of perspectives or positions and how they viewed the world around them very much impacted who I am today and how I'm approaching my fatherhood. In a way, creating an opportunity to talk about how you create opportunities for your children rather than dictating who they are to be or what they have to do. And that was, you know, he would just, I don't know, my grandfather would just tell me stories about how he raised all of my aunts and uncles and, and my mom in very candid ways. I mean, I interviewed him once when I was in middle school for one of those like interview an older generation kind of assignments. And he, he let it rip. He told me everything like it was. And I was in seventh grade and had no clue what I was asking, but I was like, well, what was it like to become a dad? And he just lost it. He was crying. He was like, you have no clue what you just asked me. 
And then he he later, you know, got a hold of himself. But he explained like he wasn't there for the birth of his first son because he was stuck in traffic. And there was, you know, trains that would block streets. And this is in the 1940s when cars moved differently. And then when his second son was born, he was serving in World War II. And so he was there for the birth of his firstborn and then got shipped off. And so for the first nine months of my uncle's life, he didn't know him. And he wrote a letter that we found later in his life from, you know, from Europe back to his wife, my grandmother saying, I guess I'll never know my son as a baby. And, you know, we're all just like, oh my God, like that's true. Right. And, and the trauma, right. These are the things that we don't think about, like think about Ukraine right now. Right. Like, and the wars that are going on in the world, like what do we put men through to distance them from the people that matter most in their lives for the sake of what, right? And I think that's part of what I didn't write about all that much in this book. Maybe that'll be in the next book, right? But we expect men to be calm, non-emotional, that they can handle their business and not have to lean on someone. And then we throw them in the toughest shit in the world and expect them to be okay. And then we wonder why PTSD is a real thing why there's sexual and domestic abuse at home. And it's because we don't allow men a chance to process in healthy ways. And I was very blessed to have my dad and my maternal grandfather and other friends and uncles and whatnot role model what it was like to express anger, frustration, all these emotions in healthy ways. And when there wasn't healthy ways, at least my dad would have the opportunity to explain why he had that frustrating moment or why he let that anger out. And when he didn't process it very well, my mom would try to do that and say, oh, dad's just lost his temper again. And I'm like, well, why is that? Right. And there's, you know, stuff we don't have to get into, but, you know, there's just stuff that as an adult now I'm trying to process to make sure that I'm also not passing down all those negative habits that we, we pick up from our parents or from other people. Wow. I absolutely love that answer. I'm also interested in like, what do you think is servant leadership? Like, how would you define that? What does that mean to you? Well, the dictionary definition, so to speak, came from Robert Greenleaf back in the 60s as a way to really think about business in a way that as the CEO, you can't be successful if your staff is not fulfilled and doing their jobs well. And so for him as a CEO, he always made sure to create opportunities for his staff to grow professionally, to do the jobs that they do really well, and to make them, to fit them into the to the roles in the company that would make them flourish so that the company would flourish. So then as the CEO, you could go to the board of directors, to stakeholders and say, we are hitting our budget, our, we're going surpassing our profits because of what our staff can do. Servant leadership really became a corporate model for how to turn a business around. And instead of being this auto, you know, a, a dictator from the top of a company, how are you allowing other people to have a voice and, and have those experiences? As I was interviewing people, as I was reflecting on my father, I realized servant leadership is also a model for dads. And I couldn't find anybody talking about it, writing about it, what have you. And so I kind of had to write about it. Robert Greenleaf had like 16 different aspects of servant leadership. Not all of them translate very well into fatherhood, right? And, and nobody has time to figure out 16 ways to be better. So I, you know, I really focused on four aspects in the book. One is around just how are you being present? How are you having a relationship with your child such that you know them and communicate them both verbally and non-verbally but you can also pick up on when they're having a bad day or what they need for Christmas without asking them, right? Like what are those non-verbals? What are those hints that they're dropping for you all the time? So being present, what are the communications that you're having with them and how are you accepting them for the communicate through that communication? And the, my favorite story was this guy named Matt, his son. They're not sure what their son identifies. He's, he's seven now, 
But when they were five, they had a fifth birthday party and said, I, I want to wear my Disney dress for my fifth birthday. And Matt was not sure, like, I don't know, is he going to get picked on? Is this the right thing? But he's like, you know what? It's his fifth birthday. I'm going to let my, my child wear whatever they want to wear. And during the party, another mom came up and said, I have to leave with my child. It's because he wanted to wear a dress. And I wasn't sure if this party would be a safe space for him to express himself. And Matt was like, of course, like, go home, get his, get his dress, come back. You know, my, my child would love to play in dresses, whatever. And it's that level of acceptance. You know, that's just one example. But like, let's say your kid has autism or some sort of other developmental difficulty. Or let's say your child just really loves math, like my daughter. How are you accepting them and allowing them to find their path through life with the skills and the both the neurotic tendencies and the joyful tendencies that they may have and building opportunities around that, right? And so my daughter's in a math Olympiad club now. We're going to look at some math camps for her this summer. My other child doesn't like math, so we're not going to do that for her. We're not going to force her into that path, right? So that's a form of servant leadership. And then the, the last piece of it is really how are you advocating for your kid and then getting out of the way and being their ally as they get older and can advocate for themselves. And, and that, again, comes with this idea of communicating and understanding who they are, understanding who you are and the skills that you can offer them. Because if you're a genius at math, great, tutor your kid. If you're a great musician, create opportunities for them to learn with you and have that lifelong learning aspect to that relationship. But don't let your past trauma, don't let your past beliefs get in the way of their growth and opportunity because ultimately it's going to get in the way of yours as a dad and it's going to blind you from the beauty that your children have in the world. There are definitely moments where I fail at these things, right? I wrote the book on it, but it doesn't mean I practice it perfectly every day. And that's why I close my book with community. And so how do you have a community of support and accountability that will allow you, you can play with them, allow you an opportunity to be vulnerable ask questions that you would be afraid to ask someone else. Because while there's a mystique out there that men are tough and can handle everything, we don't need to ask questions. In our Facebook community, it's proven time and time again that we are just as vulnerable and we need to talk through just as many things as women do or anybody does. And you just have to create the right cultural space and the right expectations to allow for that to happen. And so servant leadership really comes down to, to those elements. How are you being present? How are you building that relationship? How are you allowing your child to, to tell you who they are and accepting them for that? And then, you know, doing the, the heavy lifting when they can't advocate for themselves in those early years. That's amazing. That's really beautiful. <laughs> well, I love all of that. Wow. Okay. Do you have a question for my dad? I would say, I mean, how did he raise such an amazing daughter that you're Aww. out here? I'll give your dad a lot of credit, but I'm sure a lot of it stems from you as well. But you know, the fact that you and your dad have this relationship, he did something right along the way. And so, yeah, what was that for him? And how, and what was that for you? Right. Cause no dad is perfect for every child, but they're the right dad for the right at the right moment kind of thing, right? So what was that magic sauce for you and your relationship? I think it's definitely evolved. I'll say that. I mean, oh, there for were sure. years yeah. where I wanted to be independent and wanted to do my own thing and we didn't communicate as much. And and he was too, definitely a workaholic like you were talking about. Sure. You know, he was from that generation of, he did work with his parents and he supported his parents. And I loved that. That is definitely part of who I am today is that he had such a close relationship with his parents that I saw that and his mom and I, and, you know, I was also very close with his dad. They were like second parents to me. Sure. Well, and, and so many of us are going to end up caring for our parents, you know, like we see it already. So it's, it's bound to happen for us 
when when they get older and more feeble or or needing that extra care, we're going to be paying it back, right? There's going to be diapers that we probably change again in our future. And so having that mentality, like it sounds like your dad had with his parents, set a role model or an example, so to speak, for you to be following in some degree. 100%. Yeah, Yeah. I I definitely think that was a big part of it. But I'll say, you know, in my younger years, we didn't have so much of what you're describing. It wasn't the same as what you're doing for your kids now. And from what you described, it actually makes me want to do more of that because my kids are starting to get into the teen years where, yeah, they're happy to just go into their room and do their own thing. And it goes by so fast that if you don't unplug and play the games and take them to the park or support their interests, you're going to lose that special time. Yeah. One other thing I'll I'll say too, that I forgot to mention earlier is we take for granted so much in our life because we've been around 30, 40, 50, you know, however long when our children experience something, it's often for the very first time. And they've been on this earth such a shorter amount of time that it's a huge, it's a much bigger percentage of their life. And I, all the time I catch myself like, stop it, Brian. Like, this is a special moment for her, right? Like, make this more special. Don't just like say, okay, 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 right? Like, no, really live, build it up, make it, make it the moment that it should be. Because there are definitely moments where in my young life that my parents did that I was like, looking back on, I'm like, no other kid got an opportunity to go like, live where I lived or like have just hours on end playing in the ravine in our backyard and creating imaginations and worlds and Sometimes my dad would join me. Sometimes he wouldn't. Right. But those are those are the memories that are that stick with me or come back with me far more often than, oh, I'm, you know, my dad's working late again. Right. Like I have a lot more memories of my parents being present in my life than sitting and watching a TV show because we know that's the case. And and I don't want to again, I don't mean to say if you're that kind of parent that you have to have the screen as a babysitter, you're bad and you're losing out on something. You're not, right? I'm sure many, especially working class folks or single parents, you just have a lot to handle and a lot to to carry that my wife and I get to share or that I can pay someone to help me with in the form of a babysitter or something else. And I'd never take that for granted any moment of the of the day that I have those opportunities. And so keeping that at the forefront of parenting is also pretty critical. It just made me honestly think about the fact that yesterday I was going to take the kids after school to smoothies, but then my youngest didn't want to. And so then I was like, oh, I'll just make smoothies at home. But today I literally could just pick them up with smoothies. Right. I could show up with smoothies and make their day. Right. For the older kids. Right. It literally could be that simple. Or, you know, over the summer, one of my kids like expressed that he really loved going to an amusement park. So we made the investment to include that in a family trip of somewhere that we were going. Yeah. And find a new park that we had never been to. And he was super excited about some of these rides that he pushed himself to go on. So yes, like play that up. Right. Right. And it doesn't have to be the Disney worlds and the six flags. It could just be a new neighborhood park that has a new slide, right? Yes. There are so many layers of excitement that kids can go through. And with smoothies, you know, we invested in a, was it magic bullets a long time ago on a whim. We're like, Alice, we'll, we'll eat smoothies. 
And then we never did for the longest time. And now our kids love smoothies and they're at the stage where they want to make them. Right. And so it's not like, yeah, we could go somewhere and buy a smoothie. And sometimes we do, but it's the act of like helping them learn how to measure stuff. And, and, and it's not just smoothies, right? Cookies, pancakes, whatever. When you allow children into the activities that you do on a daily basis, they feel so cool that they get to do it with you. Again, I think that those are the things that we just so often take for granted as parents because we assume they don't want to, right? It's like it's like when you go for a job interview or, or you want to make a new friend in, in the workforce. It's like we let our own inhibitions and our own self-worthlessness, right, self-doubt, whatever, get in the way of potential true happiness or potential connections. And I'll think to myself, oh, my girls are playing quietly upstairs. They don't need me right now. And then I'll go check on them. They're like, oh, dad, you're available. Let's play something. I'm like, I could have come up 15 minutes ago, right? Granted, that was a really nice quiet 15 minutes where I could just get some other stuff done. But I just kind of, we have these scripts in our mind that tell us, oh, no, 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 don't get in their way. When in reality, they're like just waiting for us sometimes to get in their way and disrupt their day and have fun with them. So yeah, if, if any of your listeners, the one thing to get out of this is disrupt your kids' lives as much as possible and create opportunities for them to grow. I love that. That's actually even a good title. There you go. Yeah. We all need disruption though, right? Right? Like I could, you could easily get sucked into a Netflix binge, right? Or let the kids get into a Netflix binge. But if you're just like, if you take the moment to be like, stop, what else could we be doing, right? Like, how could we make this learning fun rather than just learning, right? Like maybe it's a Kiwi Box subscription. Maybe it's getting an, an, an app, Pokemon Go, where you go on adventures and have VR assisted fun and you're hunting down stuff, right? There's so many opportunities now that kids, that parents can turn into learning moments with their kids. So live it up, find like whatever you do well and your kids like to do with you, make that your parenting model. I love to cook. So I incorporate aspects of my cooking with my kids as much as I can. I love that. Yeah. My oldest son loves to cook. I actually reached out to a chef yesterday on Instagram and was like, Hey, I have a 14 year old son that loves to cook. What would you recommend? You know, he does to get better at that. He was like, see if you can find a kitchen that he can get in Yeah, to be yeah. around other chefs. I'm like, there's yeah. only so much you can learn off of YouTube. Like you need to be around people that are doing it. And using the equipment and like, all, yeah. I mean, my girls and I love a good baking show and a good Instagram story. But in the end, like my one-year-old or my one, my older daughter is afraid to flip the pancakes. And I'm like, you're going to have to get used to it. Like I didn't get good. I'm still not good. I still make mistakes. When I, sometimes I'll flip it at halfway off the pan, right? It, it happens. Or there's too much spray and it gets real slippery, you know, whatever. Or not enough not spray. Yeah. Or not enough spray. And you're not going to get that from watching. Yeah. You've got to just waste a little bit of food here and there to, to perfect things. I love that, but it's all about having fun and, and yeah. really being in the experience. Yeah, that's so good. My dad's going to love this episode, by the way. <laughs> Great. So Great. yeah, let people know how they can buy your book, find your Facebook community and connect with you. Yeah. On Facebook, Dads with Daughters is our biggest community, but we all, Dads with Sons are the two primary communities. There's plenty of, of smaller communities thereafter, like sports and all sorts of stuff. But our website, fatheringtogether.org, has a website links to all of those. And fatheringtogether.org slash ftbook is where you can find my book on our website or, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the, the major carriers have it as well. So it's a quick read. It'll be a great stocking stuffer for any anybody who's looking for a gift for their dad. I promise it's a good read, but I'm not biased, of course. Just in time for the holidays. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. This has been amazing. I've had a blast. Always good to talk with you, Leah. Now, let's 
switch it over to Grandpa. Okay, this is Brian's version of his father and daughter show with Rena. And isn't it quite ironic that if you're a father of a daughter, to give a call to the Better Call Daddy show? And isn't that what fathering a daughter is really all about? And that's where you have to be a little bit more sensitive, patient, and be able to be a mentor, a friend, and really an upright example. Getting involved and communicating with your daughter where you're giving them an opportunity to be whoever they want to be and that they have the confidence because they know that you are there to back them up and where you're going to go the extra mile for them. And that's what a daughter needs. I think so. I think he brings up something that's very interesting, that if you're not sure what you're doing, whether you're a manager of a company or whether you're a father or or whatever your endeavor might be, is set an agenda, write it down, remind yourself of what you really need to accomplish and what you need to be focused on so that you don't get diverted into or, you know, have misdirection. That's a good lesson for life as well. You have to treat people like people. You have to talk to them and communicate with them. And whoever you're working with, whether it's people in your own family or people at work, You have to excite them and motivate them where they can be the best that they can be. You're not going to have a strong team at work even if everybody isn't getting involved and wanting to also be able to show that there's growth, opportunity, and potential. Otherwise, people get burnt out and they want to move on. They want to be treated right, but they want to have an opportunity to grow and to make something out of themselves. The organization that encompasses developing people from within, I think, are a lot more successful. Yeah, sometimes you need some outside talent, but you better have an avenue that you can drive on, let your people know that they can be promoted and that their sacrifice and hard work is worthwhile too. Yeah, I knew that you would be into that servant leadership. Yeah, that's very important. But look how he's able to, by you know, getting together with a group of people that weren't sure what fathering daughters is all about, that he found out that you get into all of these discussions and all of these issues. And really, men do want to express how they can be a better father, especially to daughters, where I think every man has that instinct where they want to have a son or you'd be able to play ball with them and and be able to also, when you're younger, you want to do your own thing and you're not really sure what the right formula is in getting involved sometimes with children, whether it's female or male, find out that once you decide to have children or children come along, planned or not, that you have a responsibility to really set the table and to be part of their lives if you want them to turn out right. And that's what the Better Call Daddy show is all about, is to be able to show that from generation to generation, that there is a legacy and that you're able to have a continuum by showing that you go the extra mile for the next generation. And then you know that you've been well rewarded that when you leave this good earth, that you have made an impression that people and your family can continue. We're here such a short period of time. That should be part of everybody's legacy. It doesn't matter whose children, hopefully your own, but if you want a legacy and to make a mark in this world, shows that we were nurtured and we were willing to nurture others so that, that there's a continuum where people have a chance to see that there's hope and that there's growth and development of the human race is only possible if people make part of their legacy of teaching others and participating in the lives of others. And that's how you get recognized, is not by being selfish, but by being selflessness. I love it. 
So his question too was, what's your magic sauce? How do we have such a good relationship now? And I, I think that it has to do with presence. I mean, my God, you've listened to 300 hours of my content. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is that you have to be involved in what your children want to do. Sure, you'd like them to be following in your footsteps, or my father wanted me to follow in and doing some of the things that he wanted to do. But the fact is, is that he, he always wanted to have his own business. It failed a few, a few times. And the, the fact is, is that when you're dedicated to helping your family, and as you know, I've worked very closely with my parents, what a tremendous opportunity it turned out to be. Because not only did you get a chance to work with your parents, but you got a chance to have that real family environment, ups and downs and everything, but where you where you do everything together then. There's sometimes that camaraderie as we've talked before about being on a, a, some type of team or being in the army or being in the Navy, when you have loyalty and dedication and where people have that camaraderie I'm telling you, that's a high. When you have people where they connect and communicate and do things together and you put yourself out there and you get the right kind of response in return, that is the secret sauce. And daughters need that more than anybody. You think so? I think so. You're probably right. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 